Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Hi, Patty. Hi, Scott. <laughs> so, glad y'all are with us today on this Monday. Um, kind of a different Monday with Robert's service coming tomorrow afternoon at yes. 3 p.m. in the sanctuary. I sent out more details today to the big combined rosters of my three classes and stuff. And um, as I said, it will be streamed. But strange. we heard today to talk about Isaiah, and it's something Robert would definitely want us to do. Robert Absolutely. was a big fan of Bible study. Yes, he was. For two years, he came to a Monday morning Bible study and Sharon with us. Came and quite Sharon often. came quite, quite often, yes. and their dog came. Yes, Montana came quite <laughs> often. <laughs> so, so yeah, so he was always very, very supportive of everything that we did to try to help the church be biblically. Biblically based and Christ-centered. Those are the words he liked to use. Yes. So that's what we're going to do today. And the good part, I was telling Patty earlier, the good part is, so last week he did the Suffering Servant song, the Suffering Servant poem about, it's about Jesus, really, and um, what Jesus would go through for the sake of Israel and, and really for the world, and then how Jesus would be vindicated, would be shown to have been who he claimed to be, to have been God's all along. And so then when we come to today, it's the last pitch by God, really, in 54 and 55, the last pitch for God's people to return from Babylon to Israel. And it's very uplifting. uplifting. And yeah. there, are, there aren't some of the darker passages that you get to elsewhere in Isaiah. So I was grateful for that today. Because yes, I didn't need anything dark no, today. didn't need anything else. <laughs> Did I? No. 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 So, it's so, a hot one out there. It is. Yep, we say that every week now. We do. We do. Um, we just got the water bill. You would think, by the way our lawn looks, we've been watering it continually. <laughs> The, by the bill, the price yes. of the bill. But that's not the case. Uh, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Just it sure is. Kind of crazy. So I was trying to cheer myself up a little bit about about the heat. And? So I figured if it's that hot this here, it must be cooler somewhere else. And sure enough, it is. Where? Well, actually lots of places because I looked up the satellite data for global temperatures in June. And it was actually a cool June. Just not here. Just not here. Not in Europe, not... But but elsewhere, that's right. maybe the tropics and some other places were having cooler than normal weather. So yes. that's definitely not us, though. It's not us. And <laughs> we're hoping things are going to change in Branson in a couple weeks. Really? Yeah, yeah. we're still going up there. And I looked the other day when it was 105 here, like, ah, but we're going to Branson. It was 102 yeah. there. So I don't know. We may just be staying in our lovely <laughs> place in air conditioning. <laughs> I will be sleeping late every morning. I can promise <laughs> yes, you, you that. Will. I yes, am looking forward to that. So anyway, well, okay, shall we get started? I think we should. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here. We are grateful to have the opportunity to come together to study your word. Um, you know, we come together in just a few days after Robert's passing, but we're reminded that, you know, he may not be with us, but he is with you and your and um, we, are, we, we know that really that's, that's a great and wonderful thing. And, and so we just pray that your spirit today will move among us and bring us these words of Isaiah and see in these um, the words of God's promise and hope 
and we'll try to put some of that in some context here and just just be with us god as you always are all this we pray in Jesus' name amen amen all righty all righty so i still have a little bit of my afternoon coffee here wow Ooh. Mm, is it so delicious? Mm. You know, the kind of coffee I've taken to using is McDonald's. Oops. Really, really, true story. McDonald's K-Cups. I think they're really good, and you can get them for like, you know, they're McDonald's premium roast. I can get it on Amazon for 36 a K-Cup, 36 cents a K-Cup. Yeah. So that's that's pretty cheap in the world, a K-Cup dumb. <laughs> it's good good coffee i like it so I, I always thought mcdonald's had had pretty darn good coffee um so anyway okay so we are in isaiah 54 54 verse 1 the suffering servant song we we did last week and now we change and now god is going to appeal make this last appeal for his people to uproot themselves from babylon to make the trip home and it has been for the minimum time is 50 years for some longer which means what that there are lots of people living in the jewish community in babylon who were not born in judea they were born in babylon and that's all that they know and um you could take 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 50 year old um, Jews in Babylon, that's where they were born. And so God is trying to convince them and call them to come back to, um, to come back to Canaan, particularly to come back to Jerusalem. And he does it really sometimes with some metaphors. It's not all metaphorical. It is about an actual return. And it is about Jerusalem being restored um, to its former glory and more. But, but um, the way it's going to start is you can think of Jerusalem having been depopulated for the exile and having been depopulated for decades now, and now it is going to be repopulated. Um, so it begins in chapter 54, verse 1, Sing, barren woman, um, you who have never born, you who, you who never bore a child. And so that's going to get us into the repopulation. But there's always this, this, this thematic piece around children, fertility, um, barrenness. Um, in, Bible, in the Bible, there are several key stories that are really driven by a woman who, is, who had been unable to have children. And in the ancient world, it was totally her fault. That was the way they understood it. That was totally her fault. No blame whatsoever fell on the husband. It was totally the woman's fault, and there was a lot of shame and so forth that went with it. So one of those, as you know, is Sarah, um, Abraham's wife. They were really old when you meet them, and they did not had not had any children. Indeed, laughed at the prospect. Um, then you meet uh, Rachel. The, who has the, the sister Leah, and God must open her womb, and, and God finally does. Then you meet Hannah, the mother of Samuel. She has been unable to have children, and God opens her womb. That's the way that scripture speaks of it. And then, of course, you have Elizabeth, who is the mother, going to be the mother of John the Baptist. 
and she and her husband Zechariah are really old and God performs this miracle, opens her womb, and she has this child born about six months before Jesus, who becomes known as John as John the Baptist. So it's it, it's it's all about fruitfulness, it's about God doing new things, it's about God keeping God's promises, um, it is about never giving up. Um, never giving up on God. And so here God makes the appeal for the people to come back to Jerusalem because, you know, sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman, those would be the exiles, than of her who has a husband. They're going to return. The city's going to be repopulated. You see, it's all going to be about growth and newness and excitement and and babies and, and the rest of it, says the Lord. And look, verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent. You're going to need a bigger tent. You're going to need a bigger house. You're going to have to add on. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. You're going to have to really work on it to contend this growth and prosperity that um, you're going to find in Jerusalem. Verse 3, For you will spread out to the right and to the left, and your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth. Um, I think this shame that's being referred to here is the shame of their abandonment of God, their failure to keep their end of the covenant, and, and the resulting exile. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood, the leaving of Jerusalem. Okay? It's just, it's going to be in the past. This is so... This is, this is God all the way. It's like that favorite passage from Hosea when God says, oh, we're going to go out in the wilderness and we're going to start over. Just start over. We're, we're going to start like new lovers. It's going to be a new romance. First date. <laughs> because it had not been going well with, between God and his people. And, and God, no, nope, we're going to go out. We're going to start all over. I will speak tenderly to you, my people. Because God is the God of the fresh start. Um, one really, really unfortunate phrase I hear from people all the time is every time I say something like, well, I think God's grace can extend past the grave, people say, well, gosh, do you think God gives people a second chance? God gives, God gives out chances like what? <laughs> Um, like what, Patty? Pennies from heaven. Like pennies from heaven, just everywhere, right? God gives out, the, the Israelites give, are given chance after chance after chances. God is relentless in his pursuit of them. God has given me more chances than I could count if I tried to go through my own spiritual biography. So, so don't, don't get hung up on that kind of thinking. That's not the way to see it. Don't see it as God is stingily holding on to chances and you get one, but that's all. No, 
God wants to pull people in, not keep them out. Verse 5, then God says, For your maker is your husband. This is this great metaphor in Scripture from beginning to end. Where God is the husband, his people are the bride. Um, they are to live in a covenant relationship like marriage is a covenant. And when the people chase after foreign gods and goddesses, it's called adultery. Um, and God comes chasing after them to, to recover them and to restore this, this covenant and this relationship. Until finally, at the end of the book of Revelation, what do we come to? We come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb who is Jesus and his people, the church. The marriage supper of the Lamb. It's just this very powerful way of, of, of understanding who God's people are and the relationship that God's people have with God. So in verse 5, your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty, Yahweh Almighty, Yahweh Sabaoth is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. He is the God of all that is. He is the only God there is. The people by this time are fully monotheistic, radically monotheistic. They believe there is only one God and that this one God had chosen them and this one God had created all that there is and pronounced it all good. That's, that's, who, is, that's, who, that's who their husband is. Yahweh Almighty is his name. I was asked last week about, well, why do I always use, why do I so much of the time use God's name, which is there in the Hebrew, because every time you see that small caps Lord, that God's name, Yahweh, is underneath that, the tetragrammaton, God's name is underneath that. But, you know, Jews don't pronounce it. I have, I know of Christians who won't use it out of respect for their Jewish friends, but I think if you're going to read this, you, you really, it's helpful to, because that is God's name. So in verse 5, for your maker is your husband, Yahweh, the Almighty, is his name. Yahweh, Sabaoth, is his name. And, and just using the word Lord, or Adonai in the Hebrew, or Kyrios in the Greek, they're not personal enough. Not per a name is personal. So, anyway, that's why I do it. Nothing wrong with it. Verse 6, Yahweh will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, just for a brief moment, God says, I abandoned you. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you just for a moment. But with everlasting, but with, with eternal kindness, eternal kindness, to be juxtaposed against for a moment. But with eternal kindness, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. 
See, God's relationship with his people is a true relationship. It, You know, it's easy to think of God only as sitting up on a mountaintop somewhere or a, somewhere up in the heavens making pronouncements and blessing some people and smiting others and so forth. But even in the Old Testament, you get very intense descriptions of a personal relationship between God and his people. And it might strike you as, well, it's just not really how it is, but I think, yes, it really is how it is. I, I might be persuaded otherwise if God had not been born to a young woman from Galilee named Mary I mean, what could be more intensely personal than that? So, so once I accept the truth that God became incarnate and was born to Mary for our sake, it's a relatively easy step then to see that the nature of God is to be is is intensely personal. God is love. God is love. Um, John writes in First John. Simply that, God is love, reflecting the Trinitarian nature of God. So, so for me, that's how the pieces work together. And there isn't one God you meet in the Old Testament and a totally different God you meet in the New Testament. No, there is one God who you just, who reveals himself to us more and more and more and more as we wake, work our way through the story from Genesis all the way to Jesus and then even even beyond. Verse 9. He said, God says to me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. It's almost as if the relationship now is going to move to a different place. They have been sent to jail, in essence, <laughs> for their sins. But now they're going to come back and it's going to be, it's not going to be just the same as it was before. It's going to be better than it was before. The relationship is going to be in a different and better place. And so when I was reading through this to, you know, getting ready for class today, I um, tried to put myself in the place of Second Temple Jews, Jews in Jesus's day, reading this. And knowing that they had and their ancestors had lived under pagan oppressors for the better part of five centuries. And now the stinking Romans were in charge, visibly, always there, in the Antonia Fortress, looking down into the temple courtyards and the rest of it. And how would these words strike me? Would I think to myself, well, you know, this all sounds good, but 
Really, where have you been for five? My ancestors did make the trip back. It didn't seem to look like much what is promised here. Right? So, so that's why, in a way, the coming of Jesus is a defense of God's righteousness. See, Jesus... In Jesus lies the keeping of these promises. But I think people from Jesus' day could be excused for if they felt like, wow, these are great promises, but what's happened? So verse 10. God goes on. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be renewed. This covenant of peace. What peace? The peace between God and his people, you see? That the pieces of, of disappointment and struggle between God and his people are now going to be in the past. And God's unfeeling love for them will not be shaken. Um, the covenant of peace between them won't be removed. And yet if, you, if you're if you a Jew in Jesus' day, again, hmm. What do these words mean? How are these promises, were these prom promises kept? Will they be kept? When will they be kept? You could see how that kind of thinking could give rise, I think, to a messianic fervor where you would just be saying, as kind of as it got worse and worse and things got testier and testier with the Romans, you would say to yourself, well, okay, it's all coming to a head. God's finally going to step in and do something. And, and when God does, it, these things are all going to be evident and everybody's going to see it. And the dang Romans are going to be kicked out and those cheating, stinking conniving priests are going to be out of the picture and this stuff is all we can read about it in our scrolls it's all going to come to pass yeah I don't know I think that I think that's probably kind of where a lot of people would be it says my covenant of peace nor may my covenant of peace be removed says Yahweh who has compassion on you God has compassion on his people. God is filled with compassion. It's one of the, the grounding characteristics of God is that God has compassion um, on his people, compassion on people who are hurting or feel lost or feel sad or alienated. In the same way, we are called to have compassion upon others. That extends to doing things, not merely feeling things. Verse 11, afflicted city, this would be Jerusalem, of course, lashed by storms, not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli, that's a Beautiful. blue stone, yeah. Beautiful blue. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by Yahweh, and great will be their peace. 
In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. Remember, because the way of understanding the arrival of the Assyrians and the Babylonians were that these people were, were basically instruments of God's will. Sent there to accomplish God's will that the people suffer the consequences of their, of their sins, of their abandonment of God. So, verse 16. See, it is I, this is God speaking. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh, and this is their vindication from me, declares Yahweh. You know, I, when I read this, another piece of scripture that comes to mind are the reassurances that Jesus gives his disciples um, the night before his crucifixion. He says to them, look, you're going to, I'm going, you can't come where I'm going, you can't follow me, and you're going to go out into the world, and it can be hard, but I will be with you. I'm going to send another one after you, the Spirit, your comforter, your advocate. Um, and certainly when you turn to the book of Acts, and Peter, of all people, this, this middle class um, fisherman from Galilee stands up and gives this very powerful speech. This brave speech asking the Jews, did they understand what they had done in the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, he is standing up in like the word saying verse 17 to refute every tongue that accuses him. And he would be arrested shortly. Peter, James, and John. And so, and so these, I, I, if I were an early Christian, I would find these words comforting. I would, I would make the connection between these words and the words of Jesus and the arrival of the Spirit that indeed God is with us. And even here in 2022, we need to, we need to make those same connections. We need to be willing to be to be bold with the good news. We need to be ready, willing, able, anxious to to proclaim the good news. In words, yes, and in what we do, yes. Um, because God is with us. You will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh, among whom we are counted, right? And this is their vindication from me. Jesus was vindicated, which means Jesus was right about what he said about himself. Our words are vindicated, which means what? It means that when we proclaim the gospel truly, it is the truth. 
again, to go to one of my favorite topics, when, when, when we talk about the problem of sin, and, you know, because you gotta, you gotta talk about the problem before you can really talk about the solution. When we talk about the problem of sin, we simply are right. And, and if people don't see it, we are proved right every single stinking day. And sadly, we're proved right more and more often. And uh, I saw the... Uh, every time I see a video, I think it can't get worse than that. Until I see some car run over a guy, and then the driver of the car gets out, goes over, and empties this guy's pockets and runs back to his car and drives off. It just like, how could this be? But it can be, it can be because that that's what sin is. Sin is that's why that's what sin is. So anyway, okay. So wow, that's chapter fifty four, Patty. That was chapter fifty four. So any thoughts or questions for you, Patty, or anybody out there? No, everybody's kind of quiet today, but. I did just want to let people know, I, I always watch this on multiple um, outlets here, and <laughs> unlike my iPad app and my phone app, it's coming in great, yeah. but on my desktop, you are breaking up a yeah. lot, so I was just going to say, if anyone else is having that problem, they could switch to their phone or their iPad, there doesn't seem to be any problem Isn't there. that funny? I guess just somehow Facebook on in the browser just doesn't work as well. I don't know why that is. Maybe if we used a different browser, but really it works so well on the you iPad doing or this. something. What? Yeah, you kind of like I don't know. Why am I rubbing my chin? And, you, and then it stopped. <laughs> That's just how you were paused there. So. I don't know. I Maybe I, I'm wearing, and actually I have a collar that kind of, I have all nicely buttoned up today, which is not how I usually wear these collars at home, I have to say. So, okay, see, Jamie... Oh, good. Her desktop is you know, great. and she may use a different browser. That's use, so true. You know, it might work perfectly in Google's browser. That is might just true. be a Safari might problem. Be a Safari issue. Ooh, a Safari problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go on to chapter fifty-five. Now, in here, you're gonna hear Jesus in here now, because I'm gonna connect to two pieces of of Jesus' story. Okay, so in chapter four of John's Gospel, Jesus goes to Samaria. And he meets this Samaritan woman at the well, and you, you probably have some sense of how that story goes. And and she's come out to the well to get water, and that's a lot of work, and he offers us, and he offers her living water. Remember? Yes. Um, and they're off they're, they're talking at at two different levels, right? She's talking about the liquidy stuff that you would put into a cup, and he's talking about the living water that um, if you drink this water, you will never be thirsty, right? And then later, a couple chapters later, Jesus has the crowds around him, and he begins to talk about the bread from heaven. And he says, I am, you know, the bread of life. And he begins to talk about bread, and, and you, get, you get the multiplication of the loaves from a few chunks of bread to enough bread to feed 20,000. So that, that, that idea of limitless, I think, is what part of what underlies um, the same invitation. That's what's happening here also in chapter 55, just like 
54. So look at the first word in chapter 55. Come. Come where? Okay, so we would read that today was like, come, come to God, right? Which is great. Come to Jesus. Great. Come, follow me, Jesus says in the Gospels. Great. Here, it's a little more specific. It's come from Babylon to Jerusalem. Okay? Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Right? The promised land, the land of milk and honey, um, the land of fruitfulness, God's land. Um, verse 2, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Uh, we could get kind of theological there, huh? I mean, what, what does satisfy? I just had a sandwich <laughs> an hour ago. That'll hold me for a while. Then I'll have to eat again. But what deeply satisfies? What sort of nourishment deeply satisfies satisfies our deepest needs as human beings? It's God. Um, the reason there's such a plethora, countless religions around the count, uh, world, countless expressions of religious fervor and desire is because there is, as Augustine put it, 400 years after Jesus, there is a hole in our hearts. And we spend much of our lives trying to fill that hole. We know that something's missing. And what the hole is meant to be filled with, what can only fill it properly, is is the one true God revealed in Jesus. Um, we have a Jesus-shaped hole, a Yahweh-shaped hole. Um, but we try to, sometimes you might try, people might try to fill it with gods of their own creations, with all sorts of, you know, spiritual practices of one kind or another and denying themselves this and that. They might try to stuff it full of money or they might try to stuff it full of sex. That was all Augustine's way. And all kind, but no, it, the hole in the human heart is can only be filled properly. Kind of like a puzzle where you have a puzzle piece. That last jig, complicated jigsaw piece, it just falls into the right place. Um, like a key that is the only key that will fit into that, into the um, lock properly. Well, that is who God is. But our hearts are always searching until they find, until they find what it's looking for. And it's always sad when, when it, when it doesn't. So, why, back to verse 2 in chapter 55. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. So, sure, that's a dietary suggestion that I don't always take to heart. <laughs> Eat what is good, sure, fine. But you see there's this deeper layer. Don't be like the woman at the well who only sees the real discussion of, you know, 
the the virtues of whole wheat bread versus white bread or something see that see that see the larger question of what really nourishes and what satisfies and what we what we desire because when we do come to God we delight in the richest affair somebody came to me I think it was Glenn Austin maybe in after class last a uh, um, couple Sundays ago and saying he had had an illustration from um, one of the I think it maybe is Laura Eccles Richter up at Grace Avenue and she used had the sermon illustration where she talked about that you know after death you go you get to go in this room I think that's how it kind of went and there are these boxes kind of like safe deposit boxes and they have names on them and you open you open the box and in that box are all the things that you missed in all those years before you came to Jesus something like that and for me I kind of get that you know you know my story I think I've told it often enough but um, I feel like I lost a lot for the years not that I was this horrible person but I didn't have anything like the relationship with God or didn't put anything like what I have put into God even before I was on staff at St. Andrew you know when Patty and I were teaching young singles and I was working and all that kind of stuff now and it's it's just yeah when you when you really come to God and you put your faith in Jesus and you reorient yourself to put God at the center of your life as best you can you will delight in the richest affair to quote verse verse 2 so chapter verse 3 give ear <laughs> listen right come to me hear me listen that you may live this is God speaking to us. Listen. Um, I, I, one I one time went to a uh, laity week um, set of classes down at SMU. What these were, and I think they still have them. Um, you could go down to SMU and for two or three days, just regular old lay people could take a two-day two course with a, an SMU professor. Well, I took one with Scott Jones. Arthur's dad. I didn't know who Scott Jones was. He was just a professor at SMU at the time. And, you know, as he's going through things, I can remember the one question I asked him, because I, I didn't intend to ask many questions. The one question I asked, well, tell me how to explain God's grace to people. And Scott said, well, okay, first of all, the best definition of grace is the traditional definition of grace, God's unmerited favor. And then he went on to say, and, it, and it's kind of like this. Do you ever have, have you ever had a teenager who, who is constantly zipping by you in the house? They're busy with this, they're busy with that, and, and they run by you, and as they're disappearing off into the distance, there's this little shout you have where you're kind of saying, I love you. 
you know, and then they're off doing their next thing, and the next, you know, they're back, then their, li their lives are busy and cacophonous and all the rest of it. And he says, ah, grace is like, God puts out his arms, stops us, puts us, puts his hands on our shoulders, looks us in the face and says, I love you. So we can hear. You know, I think a lot of times when we don't hear God, it's because we don't put ourselves in a place where we could ever hear God. There's so much static in our lives. To use an old radio reference that kids don't get anymore because all they ever have is digital. But the old analog radios where you had to tune in the station, you know? easy, easy, easy to have so much static in your lives and then you wonder why you can't hear God. Right? It's, it's, that's, just, that's just how it is. We have to make we, we have to make an effort. <laughs> so here God says give ear, come to me, listen. See, listen requires something from our part on our part. When somebody says when Patty says to Scott listen to me She's expecting me to do something, which is to stop, look at her, and actually listen. Is that right, Patty? Have I got that about right? It is. It is. Right. My kids, yeah, I am really good at focusing on things. I am terrible at, at um, you know, working multiple things at the I same was just time. Multitasking. Multitasking. Is not That's your, not my thing. Not but thing. I can focus with the best of them. And, and and my kids would sometimes they kind of learned that there were times they had to come over to me and then would almost have to put a hand in front of my face and move it up and down to get my attention. So I I would actually cut away from what I was thinking about and focus on them. That was not good on my part, but anyway, they did learn that that's what they needed to do. So I guess God is waving his hand saying, you know, um, pay attention, this is Pay important. attention, give ear, <laughs> come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Whoa. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promise to David. Okay, so what promise did God make to David? 2 Samuel 7, God comes to David uh, and says, I am making this everlasting promise to you, that one from your family will always rule in righteousness and justice on the throne of Israel. And um, so for the kingdom of Judah, all of the kings that you meet in the book of Kings for 400 years are all descendants of David. If they did their, you know, um, uh, family tree, it would all be going back to, to David. It is why the Messiah was expected to come from the line of David in the time of Jesus. And the Messiah was to come to the line of David because of that everlasting promise that God made to David. Here, that promise is now being extended to the people. So as we talked about last week, 
that that G, a way to understand Jesus is that he is the representative Messiah, that he is in essence Israel. Like, remember I, I talked about like if you if you slap the King of France at one time, you you've declared war on all the French people, because the King of France was France. Same idea. Jesus is Israel. And he even gathers around himself 12 disciples, a reconstitution of the 12 tribes, and he takes people on a new exodus in, um, in the Last Supper. So this, this covenant with David about God's, God's everlasting faithfulness is, is now encompasses the people, not just the line of David, it's the people. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. I will love you without fail, God tells him. God is love. And he, how does God demonstrate that love? It's not just in words. That's easy. But God takes on human flesh and is born to a young woman from Galilee and is obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross. Now, now the fact that, me, that most of, of Jesus' fellow Jews rejected Jesus, rejected God, that doesn't change the nature of what God did. That doesn't diminish the expression of love that Jesus is, that the cross is. It's just, it just occasions great sadness. That, that's so, you can see it in Paul. Paul is heartbroken that so many of his fellow Jews have not, have not responded to the good news about Jesus. That in Jesus, God finally did the things that God had promised long before, that these promises which were made and were rolling forward finally came to fulfillment in Jesus. And it breaks his heart. So, in verse 3, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, God says. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples, Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Okay? So what do we hear in that? We hear in that this, this thread that, again, runs all the way through the Old Testament, that it, this is not merely about the Israelites, it's the Jews. It's not, they're, they're chosen, yes. But they're chosen for a purpose that's much larger than themselves. The purpose for which they are chosen is the salvation of humankind. All the families of the earth, humankind, all the nations of the earth. In, the, in Micah, all the nations will come streaming to Mount Zion. Everybody's going to sit down and 
and live in peace under their fig trees and beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Everyone, everyone. The fact that Jews often forgot this is not surprising, but it's sad. And in Paul's famous letter to the Romans, he's right at the beginning, he's taking them to task for it and say, no, you don't have any ethnic privilege. That's not what this is about. It isn't about the blood of Abraham flowing in your veins. This is about everybody. This is about those Gentiles that you won't even eat with. That would fall hard on people's ears. But nonetheless, it's true. I just finished up that coffee. I should have finished up half hour ago. Woo! <laughs> it's only good for so long. Okay, so. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Now, God isn't really going anywhere. Okay, so what's that about? How does it, it seems to us as if God is going somewhere, but what's actually going on, what's actually going on is that we're wandering away. So what I hear in this is a call to, okay, God is near now. You, you, you feel God's presence. Well, do something about it right then. Don't wait because what's going to happen is the world is going to suck you back out there. I don't know how, what you you're hearing, you're hearing a great I don't know what you're hearing a great message on a Sunday morning and you're deeply moved and yet you allow yourself 2 minutes later to go off to a shopping list When God is near keep him near That's how we experience it God is actually going anywhere. We are, but when when we are when when God is near, let's stay in God's nearness. Let's stay in God's presence. Not go running off somewhere. Verse seven: Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them what turn to Yahweh, and He will have mercy on them. Why will God have mercy on the wicked and the unrighteous? Because that's who God is. God is a God of justice. God is a God of mercy. But isn't it saying, let the wicked forsake their ways? So yes. he's saying they, they need to do a 180. It's like, it's like, what is it like? It's like the adulterous woman in John 7, that famous story, when who's the one who's being stoned, mm -hmm. right? Yes. What does Jesus say to her at the end? Never mind. I'll just go on. It's all right. No, no. Go and sin no more. There you go. Go and sin no more. So, um, that's why the Bible talks so much about repentance. That we're to come before God with a repentant heart. And, and forgiveness is waiting to be poured out on us when we repent of our sins. 
You know, you could say to me, well, I just thought, you know, forgiveness would just pour out on us anyway, whether I repented or not. Does that make any sense? Could you take somebody who is determined to do the most awful evil things, and is that going to back off an inch on that, and yet come before God saying, oh, God, just forgive me? Does that seem right to you? Does that seem just? Does that seem, does, does that seem like something Jesus would do? Nope. It sure doesn't. If you think that's how it is, well, that's, I, I don't know. No, of course not. It, that's not even right. It doesn't mean you have to be able to come up with a list of all of the things that you might have possibly done that don't reflect the love of God and love of others, but when you do know what they are, we need to repent of them. Of course we do. They're poisonous when we carry them with us. We need to shed it. We need to shed that stuff and, and fill our hearts with God's forgiveness so that we can then go out ourselves and breathe that forgiveness out upon others So, who have done something to us. Just like the Lord's Prayer, right? Just like the Lord's Prayer. The trespass is part of us. Yep. Let them turn to Yahweh, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And then this famous verse, verse 8, that we, I think we humans are inclined to either forget or ignore. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my way, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. There is, of course, a great tendency among us to make God into a better version of ourselves. Admittedly, a better version of who we are. And so we sort of start with ourselves and then we sort of work outward and grow from there. And that is a doomed project. We are finite creatures. God is not. God is, in that respect, the transcendent other. Right? And if God did not reach out to us, and God did not, in essence, extend a hand through the incarnation of Jesus, if God did not reach out to us across some vast, unimaginable ditch, we would have no point of contact with God. Because whatever we might imagine God to be, we would be far wrong. That is the failing of basically people who want to imagine that they can work out who God is or what God is like on their own. They can't. God's thoughts are not their thoughts. God's ways are not their ways. Plato was a very, very brilliant man who made a lasting mark on human civilization. That goes on to this day, and I'm sure will go on until Jesus comes back. But his thoughts about God were just completely off the mark. <laughs> Logical. It's like it would be it would be like Spock's imagining of God. It it's logical, 
but wrong. Because Plato's idea about the first mover was devoid of anything smacking of genuine personhood. Just not there. Whereas the God who actually is and comes to encounter the humans in these stories we get in the scripture and who is incarnate is deeply involved in the messiness of life. There isn't even always logic to it. It's not about logic. It, it's about love and relationship first. The two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one, love the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So, um, yeah, verse 8, that, you know, that's such a famous verse. It, you, can, you can circle it or mark it, note it, 55.8 in Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. It's ever remind. It's the ever-present reminder that you can't reduce God or Jesus to being your buddy. Just a little better version of yourself. Nope. Mm -mm. Verse nine: As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So Jesus told a parable about a sower. And you know this parable probably. Remember the parable Jesus tells where the, the, the sower is going out to sow and spreads it around and some of it falls on dry ground and some of it falls in the cracks and some of it is beaten down by the sun, take, overwhelmed by weeds. A lot of it just comes back empty, basically. Well, when Jesus told such a parable, that would be shocking to people. Because they all knew the scroll of Isaiah. If they didn't know much else, they knew the scroll of Isaiah. That when God's word goes out, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. But will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And Jesus tells a parable about the sower sowing seeds that do not come back. What is he talking about, Jesus? Boldly talking about those who do not respond to the good news in various ways and for various reasons. But that doesn't matter so much why. It's the truth that they don't respond to the good news. And so God's word comes back unfruitful. And it's shocking when Jesus tells the parable. I've heard it said that it was one of the most shocking of all of Jesus' parables. Because this is such a famous little piece of scripture. Of course it is. Because it's promising. Because of the promise of, of God's word going out, fertile and um, fruitful. Verse 10. 
Verse 11, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Why is that? Why do the mountains and the hills and the trees clap and sing and burst? Because all creation is wrapped up in the rebellion in the garden. When Adam and Eve destroy their relationship with God, in essence, they take creation down with them. And so Paul writes in Romans 8 that all creation groans awaiting its redemption. That's why when you get to the end of Revelation, it's not just about healed relationships. It is about a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and all the rest of it. So the trees are, of the field are going to clap their hands and the mountains the hills are going to burst into song. You see this theme repeated um, a little bit in the Gospels, um, some in the Psalms. It's a, it, um, it's always what's so what is it scripture is always calling us to the larger view of what god is doing it's because it's easy for us to take it down just to me and god and that's great that I means it's great your relationship with god you're putting your faith and trust in jesus christ and what that means for you and your life but you can't let that blind you to the larger purpose here. Because if you do, you won't even understand that, that there's work for all of us to do in this larger purpose. That we're all supposed to be Jesus's witnesses. We're all supposed to go out and make disciples, right? It's not just for a few, it's for us all. Disciples beget disciples in, in that sense. Verse 13, instead of the thorn bush, remember in Genesis 3, God promises, well, you know, you've really messed it up now. And when you're going to be out there working the fields, it's going to be all hard and difficult. And you're going to get weeds and thistles and thorns and the things that are going to cut you and the rest of it. Instead of the thorn bush, will grow the juniper. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. It is the undoing of the consequences of the human rebellion against God. This will be for Yahweh's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. So, come back. Come back, God says. Come on, it's time. I know it's a trip and people don't like change, but it's time to come back to come back to Jerusalem, come back to the promised land of your ancestors, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will be with you every moment, and we will make this covenant of peace, and I will never abandon you or grow angry with you. And there we go. So, I don't know. Any thoughts or questions, Patty? No, Scott. Anything from anybody out there? No, everybody is, you got a good group of folks on, but everybody's kind of quiet today. Okay, well, all right. 
So I think we're going to stop there because now it changes. When you go to chapter 56, um, there are some who think that actually 56 forward was, again, a different piece of writing. I'm not in that group myself. But in 56, we've been talking about others than, than the Israelites, the Jews. And so I, I think we'll just, because there's this kind of shift in... Um, in, in perspective we'll just we'll just save that for next Monday as opposed to plunging in and only just getting a little ways into it so Miss Patty can come around you know, the I will... captions just did something funny again because you said you're talking about <laughs> chapter 56 forward yes what did it, it say? was a 56 forward 56 <laughs> Ford. I probably rode in a 56 Ford at some time in my life. Yeah, when I was a little kid. Probably did. I, I remember did. my mom had a Ford. I think it was a Ford. This black Ford. And um, she got pulled over for speeding. Or some sort of traffic violation in Shreveport. Uh, uh, with, uh, this is with, I think, the, all three of us little kids were in the back seat. <laughs> but I, as I recall, here's my recollection. My mother was able to flirt her way out of that ticket. Oh, that she was a like smooth Barbara. talker. That My mother like was. Barbara, it does. <laughs> that sounds like Barbara. <laughs> oh, no funny. So. <clears throat> yep. Okay. Yep. Scott's mom actually she had many jobs when she was a single mom for a while, and uh, one of them she was a DJ. So she had that smooth talking. <laughs> she was. Smooth she was talking. on the radio down in West Palm Beach, Florida. And instead of Barbara Engel, she was Bobby Blair. Bobby Blair. This is Bobby Blair on the air. Yeah. So yes. we, see, also, I had two two younger brothers, so we would sometimes turn on the radio at home, and she would be playing out the tunes. <laughs> Bobby Blair coming to you across the airwaves on station. That's pretty whatever, cool. Whatever, yeah. I bet you nobody else out there has a mom who was a DJ. I guess we're going to find gonna out find shortly. Out, Somebody's so. probably going to put it in the notes if they do. Um, the parable you were talking about is Matt thir Matthew 13, 1 to 23. That came Yeah, okay. so that, it's just the parable of the sower, well known. Um, and it's in Matthew, ooh, I'm pretty sure it's, you're going to find their parallels probably in Mark and Luke because it was really um, an important parable and a very surprising one, that's the thing. So. Careful people put a few little things there. Okay. Your mom. Bobby Blair. <laughs> Bobby Blair. Okay, my dear. Let's close in prayer. Um, again, just a reminder, I know most of you know this, Robert's service is tomorrow at 3 o'clock at St. Andrew. Um, it will be very, very full. I'm, I'm assuming by 2, 2.30 that parking lot's going to be maxed out. Yeah, well, that, they're not making promises of the doors being open until 2.10. 2.10. But I think by 2.30 it will be getting to be, and they're going to be overflow into the Smith and, the and into the parlor. Okay. And So if you're um, getting there very, very close to 3, you might just want to grab yourself a seat in Smith. Right, really. Yeah. So the church offices will be closed starting at noon tomorrow, tomorrow. and so my class at noon will not be happening tomorrow. Right. The First Corinthians class is not going to be meeting tomorrow. We'll just meet next week. Very true. Okay, and uh, we'll see you all on Sunday. And Scott's preaching on Sunday this week and teaching, I starting am. a whole new teaching thing on a Sunday. A new series in the, our classes, Sunday at 11 o'clock. That's right. 
So let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the time that we got to spend today, Lord, going over your word. We also thank you, God, for the life of Robert Hesley, and all of us who knew him loved him. And we just pray tomorrow that this memorial service that is for him will be something, Lord, that I think actually heaven would be happy to be looking down on. We, um, we are such a grateful church. We are so grateful, God, for the opportunity to get to know Robert as we did and for him to be the founding father of our church. And um, we just pray, God, that you would hold St. Andrew close at this time. That, um, again, we know you're right there, Lord, but that we would we would be looking for your presence in our lives all the time, God. And if we step away, Lord, help give us a little nudge to get right back on track. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We just pray, God, that you would continue to watch over us in the days to come. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Adios. Bye, friends. Bye-bye. We'll see you Sunday.